Angel, Caliban, Wolverine. Who else? Hey, Miles, what's up to? I'm making a list of all the X-Men who have been Horsemen of Apocalypse. Oof, you are definitely going to need more paper. I know, right? I mean, just off the top of my head, let's see. There's the three you listed, Gambit, Polaris, Sunfire, Caliban a second time, Psylocke. Does Apocalypse ever go for non-mutants? Occasionally, yeah. Deathbird and Hulk have both been war, and the future Horsemen who just showed up in Extraordinary. Ah, spoilers. Right, well... Anyway, there are definitely some non-mutants in that lineup. I'm not going to say who. Oh, and Sentry and Grim Reaper were both in the Apocalypse Twins lineup. Weird. Who else was in that batch? Uh, Banshee and Dokken. I assume Grim Reaper was death. Yeah, but so was everybody else. You mean they were all dead, right? Well, that too. But no, I mean the twins decided to cut out the middlemen and just make all four of the horsemen officially death. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 102 of J and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. All right, so here we are back at you again with, I believe, some X-Factor this time. We are, and it's been a few weeks since we've checked in on these guys, so let's maybe catch up and see what was up to previously, because there has been a lot going on in X-Factor. There's been a lot going on in everything. Someone should make a podcast explaining all this crap. So, in the backdrop of everything that's happening is the political scene, and what's going on is that the Mutant Registration Act has passed, and mutant registration is now mandatory, so that's sort of coloring the background of all of the books right now. More specific to X-Factor, we've got three major plot lines that immediately precede what we're covering today. The first is Angel, and specifically the Archangel stuff. Angel apparently committed suicide after losing his wings to infection and then amputation. Apocalypse found him, made him into the Horseman of Death, and sent him to fight against X-Factor. He flipped, got his, you know, his mind back, but is still pretty screwed up and has at this point gone off to look for Candy Southern, who has apparently been kidnapped by the right, the anti-mutant hate group run by Warren's former best friend, Cameron Hodge. In his Archangel form, Angel is much more dangerous. He is significantly unbalanced. He's also got these metal wings that are heavily bladed and covered in neurotoxins that he has only dubious control over. He's also got like a super sweet skin suit jumpsuit thing designed by Walter Simonson that should look terrible, but actually looks awesome. I didn't think that pink stripes could look so rad on a wing dude, but they totally do. Speaking of supervillains, the last non-apocalypse supervillain that X-Factor went up against was a woman named Infectia. Infectia was a sort of goofy character. Her deal was that via poisonous kisses, she could briefly give people monstrous superpowers, after which they would explode. She was trying to get ship. That's the sentient future tech celestial floating fortress of a ship that X-Factor is currently living in and that they got from Apocalypse. Seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, ship is cool. Ship is sentient and friendly at the moment. Ship started out kind of coerced into working for Apocalypse. But Infectia really wanted Chip and tried to seduce Iceman. Beast jumped in and was infected in Iceman's stead. Now, normally that would have just turned him into a monster and then killed him, but Beast was already pretty screwed up, first as a result of genetic manipulation by evil and now dead scientist Carl Maddox, and then again because of infection from Pestilence, one of Apocalypse's other horsemen, with a disease that basically made him super strong but made him lose intelligence and lose rationality and cognitive reasoning the more he used his strength. I feel like Beast's DNA is just sort of held together with spit and bailing wire by this point, and it's just going to get so much worse over time. Beast's DNA is literally just X-Men continuity. Just little comic books turned into paper chains inside of his bloodstream? Yeah. Or, well, okay, fine, his nuclei. Your DNA is not in your bloodstream. I know that much. 
Well, I mean, it is indirectly in the same sense as like we are in space because we are on Earth and Earth is in space. Nah, I'm out of details. In any case, after the infected kiss, Hank is currently comatose and the ship does not know whether he will survive. The third thing going on is that as far as the world, including X-Factor, knows, the X-Men are all dead. They have died on national television. And this impacts one member of the team in particular because two members of the X-Men who died were Cyclops' brother and, as far as he knew until that point, and now once again, late wife. Right. Cyclops thought Madeline Pryor had died previously. Turned out, you know it's complicated. Let's not worry about it. But what he found out via this TV broadcast was that Madeline had been alive is now dead, and that their kid, who he thought was also dead, is alive but missing. Okay, so we have Archangel going around with bladed wings looking for his ex-girlfriend, we have Hank's DNA organized in a rather plaid fashion, and we have the X-Men dead and Cyclops mourning. So, okay, from here then, I guess we should talk about X-Factor number 32 through 35. All right, we've kind of got three arcs that we're covering here. 32 is pretty much a fill-in, but it's got some important foundation for what comes next. 33 and 34 largely wrap up the Cameron Hodge branch of X-Factor's story, and 35 leads very directly into Inferno. 32 is a fill-in. It's plotted by Tom DeFalco with art by Steve Lytle. Louis Simonson does the dialogue of the script. The A-plot this issue is basically the platonic idea of a fill-in. It is fill-in distilled to its purest form, like down to a gratuitous one-off fight with villains who will never show up again. Yeah, this is a weird one. Now, Tom DeFalco, we've seen him before. I believe he was the person who did the fill-in last issue of the X-Men vs. Avengers miniseries. Ouch. You know, he's done a lot of really awesome work. These work of his we have covered perhaps are not his greatest. That said, this issue's fine. It's fun. It's got some good stuff. This time specifically, X-Factor is going to be fighting some fake Avengers. These fake Avengers are alien shapeshifters, and at first I thought they were just miscolored scrolls. They are not. They are a race of aliens called Zartans, whom Thor fought in his eighth appearance back in Journey into Mystery number 90. At which point he, what, made them turn into trees, I think. Uh, he totally did, as opposed to the time that Mr. Fantastic made a bunch of scrolls turn into cows. He also threw someone's dad into space. Thor did, I mean, not Mr. Really Fantastic. anyone's dad, not necessarily a Zartan. Maybe it was your dad, maybe it was my dad. So, set up. Let's see. There's Ship. Beast is in bad shape. Beast is dying. And Ship feels horribly guilty about this. Iceman feels horribly guilty about this. Appropriately, I think, in Iceman's case. Yeah, he was thinking with his ice dick, and Beast almost got killed. He was thinking with his ice overcompensation. His ice overcompensation. That's got less of a ring to it than ice dick, I gotta say. It does, yeah. More syllables. Well, what can you do? But more retroactively accurate. But yeah, Beast is uh, kind of falling apart. I mean, he keeps shifting between his blue furry form and his sort of more standard human-looking form. Ship is not optimistic about his chances. And Cyclops, I love how super angsty Cyclops is being. Like, at one point, Marvel Girl shows up and is saying that, you know, they should stay with Beast just in case. And I love how angsty Cyclops is at this point as he says, In case he dies, Gene, like my brother and Maddie died, like everyone I love dies. And he's ridiculous, but, you know, he's not wrong. And he's also making a pretty salient point, which is that, look, there's not really anything we can do here. And, you know, the vigil thing... I get the point of it on a personal level, but we're also dealing with the functional equivalent of an Amber Alert. And maybe that should a little bit take precedence. Right, because Madeline Pryor and Cyclops' kid has been missing for, God, I don't even know how many issues at this point, quite a few. Well, everyone just sort of forgot he existed for a really long time. Now, Destiny of Freedom Force, formerly of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, the last time Cyclops and Marvel Girl ran into her, she gave them some cryptic poetry-sounding stuff about, you know, cold and mists and a coffin about where the baby was. Specifically, somewhere from your past, which is 
just about the least useful hint you can give a character whose primary salient backstory point is retrograde amnesia. Was it that stop and go I was at yesterday? Uh, maybe, maybe it was the Walmart I was at a few weeks before. Maybe it was that time I got a passport. God, I don't know. The, the Xavier School? The Coffee A Go Go that's now a sushi bar? It turns we'll out. We'll never find him now. It turns out Bernard the Poet has been raising Nathan Christopher Summers as a young beatnik. Did I tell you I found out that the Coffee A Go Go was a real place? Wait, like the specific Coffee A Go Go was a specific real place? Yeah, it was. It was a cafe and concert venue. Does that um, mean Bernard the Poet was real? I don't know, but there's a documentary about it, which I would like to track down and watch. Oh, man. Bernard, I'll find you someday. Someday. But we Miles, digress. Bernard the Poet is always with us in our hearts. I suppose that's true. Yeah. So anyway, Cyclops is being angsty. Beast is maybe dying. But that's irrelevant because then the Avengers attack the ship. The fake Avengers. The fake, right. The fake Avengers who are really shape-shifting aliens. Of course, X-Factor doesn't know this, and they just sort of try to pull their punches and fight them. The ones who do figure this out are the X-Factor kids. These are the teenagers and children who X-Factor have rescued and who are living with them for now in ship. They are, I believe, Boom Boom, Richter, Rusty, Skids, Artie, and Leech. And they are hanging out in their kind of rad clubhouse room, which I want to take a second to talk about. Oh, yeah. Because there's, first of all, it's awesome. And second of all, it's got one of my favorite things, which is sort of a mix of real and fake cultural references. Yeah, all the different bands that they're talking about. Right. right? Well, they've got posters and records for a number of bands, and one of them is real, one of them is sort of real, and one of them is entirely faked. Okay, so who do we have here? So Culture Club is a real band. Killer Dwarves, and I'm pronouncing dwarves carefully because the spelling matters, is a real Canadian metal band that would have been around at that time, but the real band spells it differently. They spell it with an F and with funky capitalization. Okay. So I assume that was supposed to be a reference to that actual band, because it's within the general arc of the music that tends to get referenced in X-Books during that period. The entirely fake band is the Crippled Puppies, one of whose albums Boom Boom has. They were not a real band in 1988, but there is at least one contemporary band with that name. So make of that what you will. I also think it's worth noting that Ship has a turntable but no CD player, which seems weird to me for something that's fundamentally super technology, although maybe it means that the Celestials are just really hardcore audiophiles. No, I think it was Apocalypse, you know? I like the way the sound sounds more organic on vinyl! For fuck's sake, Apocalypse. I'm just saying, dude's got standards. I assume that he has listening parties in his ski chalet. (laughs) He does, and if people try to talk, he just shuts them up immediately by clamping like a big robot face clamp arm attachment over their faces. So the kids notice what the adults have not, which is that these can't be the real Avengers because the actual Avengers are making a hospital appearance somewhere else on TV. They decide they want to go out and help. Ship says, oh, hell no. I've already put way too many people in danger. I didn't stop infect you. Cyclops told me that you kids have to stay out of danger, so I'm locking you in. The kids try to break out. Ship doesn't let them until they finally make the salient point that Cyclops has really, really bad decision-making skills. So Ship should probably just let them out instead of assuming that the adults made the right choice. Ship concedes, you know, this stellar logic, and um, the the ex-kids come out and successfully take on the fake Avengers. I want to make a couple points here, because Boom Boom is the hands-down MVP this issue on a lot of fronts. Oh, yeah. First of all, I really love, like, the little style and mannerism notes with her really throughout this. Like, I was only half-joking about doing a visual companion to this episode that was just all of her reaction expressions. (laughs) But she does stuff like stop and put on sunglasses before saying something cool. And she takes down fake Thor, which she's very proud of, justifiably. Oh, yeah. She, like, attaches a time bomb to his fake Thor hammer as it's returning to him and blows him up. 
So the the X Factor kids, you know, I want to take a moment actually and talk about these kids and specifically to contrast them with the other group of teenagers we've been following, namely the New Mutants. Uh, yeah, okay. So the New Mutants are in what's explicitly a school setting, and they're in a school being run by Magneto, who at this point is very protective and very autocratic. And they never seem to quite have internalized the idea of their own mortality, even after one of them was killed. They will just run off into peril, you know, just sort of yell, I'll take the case and jump in without looking. The X-Factor kids don't do that as much. The X-Factor kids seem a lot more cautious and thoughtful in the way they engage. And I think some of that is the lineup, but more of it is their relationship to the adults around them and the world around them, because X-Factor is training them. They're including them to some extent in decisions and they are engaging with the world and encouraging the kids to engage with the world in ways that the New Mutants really, really aren't. And Magneto is especially trying to block them from at this point. Yeah, and I think you also have the fact that the X-Factor kids are all rescues of various sorts. They've all been through some horrible stuff before coming to the comparative safety and sanity of X-Factor. The New Mutants, their base of operations, their default has been things being pretty okay. I mean, okay, maybe not magic, but basically the rest of them. Well... A lot of the New Mutant kids were in pretty imminent and severe peril before they joined the New Mutants and have been plenty since. But again, I think it's more that when the X-Factor kids jump into the fight, it's not because they're rebelling. They're not really countering orders. They're looking at it and going, well, this isn't working. We're in a position to jump in. And so, yes, good guys win. Zartans are, you know, taken care of, presumably to never be seen again. I I have no idea if the Zartans show up again. I'm not really a Zartan fanboy. I, I, I... Can't quite bring myself to care. The only thing I care about with the Zartans is that their leader has an amazing mustache, and I'm pretty sure that's why he's the leader. I mean, it works for the Starjammers. Right? I'm just saying. Meanwhile, though, while they're fighting that fight, something else is going on at the headquarters of the Right. Now, the Right is the shadowy, evil, anti-mutant organization run by Warren Worthington's former BFF and X-Factor's former PR guy, Cameron Hodge. That jerk. Cameron Hodge, who has now taken to wearing robes. That's new, this issue, I think. Well, he's got this sort of culty thing going on, and that is going to start totally making yeah, sense. Yeah, and that was a shift, because he was very much the corporate supervillain, and now he's gone hardcore cult leader. Like, the last time we saw him, I believe, was in New Mutants number 60, when he was apparently killed on the Animator's Island. Yeah, they blew up his helicopter, and he was apparently dead. And we were very excited, because as much as we love Cameron Hodge as a villain, he's also, like, super, super, super evil in very not-okay ways. And we find out here that, in fact, he was rescued by fishermen and decided that he was going to, to I guess, maybe adopt some of the animators' stylistic decisions and approaches to anti-mutant propaganda. He is now wearing fancy robes and dealing with demons, uh, specifically with Nastier. Yeah, and I believe this is Nastier's first appearance. I mean, we talked about him in our last X-Men episode, but I think he shows up here first. Yeah, technically. Um, he offers Nastier his soul, and Nastier's like, nah, bro, redundant. Eventually, what we find out is that what Nastier really wants from him are a bunch of babies, specifically mutant babies. Wolvie, they're stealing a baby! Yeah, this whole thing, like the background of the next few issues and the main story in 35 is basically Baby Race 2000, while a bunch of people are trying to find babies. Yeah, and I mean, if you're reading all the X-Books at the same time, like we are, it's actually kind of cool seeing all these different forces having overlapping but at times opposed goals with one another. Like, it gets really chaotic and intricate in a way that appeals to the X-Fan in me. The way he gets in touch with Nastier, by the way, is he is using the writings of the 15th century sorcerer Belasco. 
Yeah, it's kind of cool because Cameron Hodge just is referring to Belasco as this historical figure that, you know, he found his book and talked to some demons with it. But we, of course, know that Belasco was in charge of Limbo before Ileana Rasputin was, etc., etc. Again, nice and intricate. Everything connects. Everything connects. So, yeah, that's that fill-in issue, and I gotta say, props to Louise Simonson for still having plot stuff go on in the background during it. So now it is back to the plot and also back to the Simonson and Simonson creative team, who I love. the best creative team. So, New York City. There's a big heat wave going on, and as often happens in heat waves, the Alliance of Evil has been released from prison and is beating the hell out of everyone, as Trish Tilby, our favorite reporter, reports. Well, she also mentions that the heat wave is causing hallucinations, which I assume is actually people just reporting inanimate objects attacking them, which is actually happening. This dude on national TV is like, oh man, yeah, I I saw this guy and I think he was Magneto and he was like Silver Age declaiming at a fire escape. It was super weird. And Trish is like, dude, that's just Tuesday. (laughs) Yep. This Um, is New York. Come on. So anyway, the Alliance of Evil, let's briefly talk about who they are. They are the sort of first bad guy team that X-Factor fought way back in the day, back when Bob Layton was writing. They're not that interesting, to be honest. I mean, they used to work for Apocalypse. They briefly worked for Apocalypse and then just sort of wandered off. Yeah, well, they got arrested. Um, So we have Frenzy, Tower, Stinger, and Time Shadow. And really, Frenzy is the only one that matters. She's going to show up later, and she's awesome. Frenzy Um, is great. Frenzy will eventually become a a major X-Men character. So the Alliance of Evil is apparently out here protesting the Mutant Registration Act. Which I keep on abbreviating as MRA in my notes and then getting really confused when I go back and review them. Oh, well, apparently I don't like things that abbreviate to MRA, so there you go. Right? Nothing good ever, although I think there's some, like, electrical term, too. Well, maybe that one's fine. Anyway, yeah, I guess their method of protest is just random destruction. It's like, hey, don't force mutants to register because you think they're dangerous. We'll show you how dangerous we are to make you not do so, which, guys, I don't think it works that way. I mean, it's the alliance of evil. So from here, we cut to people clothes shopping, because, you know, that's what you typically do, riot clothes shopping. Well, it's what you do when you've got a bunch of teenagers who you're about to send off to posh boarding school, and they've basically been wearing whatever you wear when you're running around with X Factor, which is awesome if you're Boom Boom and Skids and just kind of okay if you're everyone else. Yeah, nobody can measure up to Boom Boom and Skids. I mean, no one in the Marvel Universe or real life can measure up to Boom Boom and Skids. Speaking of which, can we talk about how just utterly on point Boom Boom's sunglasses game is in this whole arc? Like, I want every single pair of sunglasses she wears here. They're all so good. You're an expert on sunglasses, so I trust your judgment on this. It's true. So what's going on? We've seen it referred to that the kids are going to be sent off to boarding school because X-Factor feels like they need a real education. They're worried about the Mutant Registration Act and don't want them running around with a bunch of superheroes. If we're going to nitpick, the original plan was Exeter. Now they're headed to Andover. And so they're all getting clothing and the clothing is not working. You know, like it's all the wrong size suddenly or it's tangling itself up. So basically they're having a typical clothing shopping experience. No, what's happening is the devil! Or at least the beginnings of the demonic possession of everything inanimate in New York City. And in fact, a sweater totally attacked boom boom and she blows it up with one of her time bombs and it's hilarious and they're talking about the mutant registration act and the impetus to do that and boom boom is convinced that it's because the government is trying to get them all to work for them which means that rusty is able to get in the slick burn yeah sure mutant born with power to make energy pellets defeats sweater (laughs) i love it when rusty has a personality it doesn't happen very often this issue is full of rusty having a personality so like most department store trips their shopping expedition is interrupted by the riding alliance of evil who's busting shit up so everyone gets caught up in the fight of course rusty decides even though he's trying to keep a low profile because he's got like a warrant out for his arrest He's got to help his buds. He makes himself a mask out of, like, a sweater that he burns eye holes in. You're a good kid, Rusty. Go set something on fire for justice. And the Alliance, of course, wastes no time in trying to recruit Rusty because, of course, they recognize him. He's like, all right, we're looking for a kid who can make fire who hangs out with these people, and there is one of those. Meanwhile, back at Stately Ship, the ship, 
Cyclops and Beast are hanging out watching this unfold on TV. Cyclops has apparently drawn the Beast sitting duty card. He hasn't forgotten that his kid exists this time. He's just still trying to decipher Destiny's clues because, again, the somewhere from your past thing is a little bit difficult in combination with retrograde amnesia. Beast, meanwhile, is switching between his blue and more human-looking forms, getting sicker and sicker. But the Alliance of Evil's nefarious attempts to recruit his young charge is enough to snap Beast out of it. He breaks free of the restraints, ship is placed around him, and bounds back into action in his newly revived blue and furry form, declaring, I struggled harder than before, and I awoke from that nightmare as you see me, blue again and covered with fur. A monster to some, but humanity is measured in mind and soul, not in number of hair follicles. And I can reason again. Oh, the joy of language, the ecstasy of ideas. I am so happy that our bouncing blue beast is back. Me too. I mean, okay, so for me, this is kind of where my favorite era of beast begins. Right this exact panel right here. This is, I think, my favorite version of beast. Because he's very much himself, but it's before he gets as acutely cynical as he is going to later become. Well, and he's also got that kind of humor from the time he was in the Avengers when he was sort of the jokester member of the team, but he's got the scientific background that he abandoned during the Avengers run because there were so many other scientists. Like, it's the best of both worlds with Beast right here. And he looks awesome. Yeah, the way Walter Simonson draws this version of Beast is so rad. Yeah, he's got great facial expressions. And now he is strong again, he is smart again, and he's awesome and blue again. So Team Royal Blue heads into town to help out with <laughs> Team the Royal fight. Blue? Well, because Cyclops has the Royal Blue costume now, too. Oh, they match, they coordinate. Yeah, so they're basically Team Royal Blue. And like they that. head into town to help out with the fight. They are totally winning. They've effectively taken down the Alliance of Evil when their victory is interrupted by the arrival of a helicopter full of Freedom Force. Freedom Force, of course, being the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants who now work for the government and enforce the Mutant Registration Act. And are really pissed off at the Alliance of Evil for what they perceive as trademark infringement on their old name, because I guess you can't say of evil in both titles. That's really not how it works. Well, to be fair, the Alliance of Evil also has the downside of their name being dumb. And so was the Brotherhood of Evil Mutant Smiles. Well, right, but they were dumb first is the point. I guess. Although, again, I feel like of evil isn't a distinctive feature. I know we've got lawyer listeners, and I feel like, you know, this goes well beyond zealously protecting one's trademarks and really into the ridiculous. I think this is this is a fairly clear-cut case of fair use. You know, we need a maritime lawyer to figure this out. That's what I think. Where's Wolverine? I mean, dead as far as X-Factor knows. Oh, yeah. Good point. That's probably why they don't call him. So Freedom Force is like, hey, just so you guys know, you really have to register. How about right now? X-Factor says... Are you fucking joking? Actually, that's not true. Beast says, look, my identity was already public. Easy peasy. I'll sign everything in paper airplane it back to you. Cyclops, Marvel Girl, and Iceman feel somewhat differently. The rest of us will sign these documents, acknowledging our public identities and public activities as mutant citizens, but only with the names we have chosen to represent these activities. And Jean says, We will continue to protect our private identities and our private lives. And Bobby finishes, because apparently they've like carefully choreographed the being able to finish each other's long speeches at hello, this point. Hello, hello, hello. Basically. And if the government has a problem with that, let Freedom Force try to beat them out of us. So yeah, let's have a round of fucking applause for compartmentalization and the right to privacy. Thank you, X-Factor. X-Factor thinks that your real name policy is bullshit, Google. (laughs) Just putting that out there. And Facebook. And I'm with them. That just leaves Rusty, because Rusty Collins is the only member of the X-Factor kids who is 18 and therefore obliged to register. Rusty's circumstances are also complicated by the fact that he is a wanted criminal, but Rusty decides at this point that he is done with hiding. He is going to take a stand. 
I won't, and I won't run again either, or take the coward's way out. X-Factor's activities are well-documented. They're the good guys, no matter what some people try to say. I am too. But I'm also a private citizen with all the rights, privileges, and obligations associated with citizenship in this great country. Mutants, even mutants like the Brotherhood of Evil, aren't deadly weapons, like guns that have to be registered, but human beings with special gifts and the same human rights as everyone else. Tomorrow, I will voluntarily turn myself in at Portsmouth Naval Prison, where I will answer this poster's allegations. But I will not sign that onerous document. And I should say, he's holding a wanted poster of himself. It's, Man, it's Rusty not just Collins. a random poster. Right, yeah, go pyrokinetic redhead. Like, way to stand up for what makes America great. You done good, kid. Yes, go hang out with Captain America. You guys can share, like, milkshakes. Now, there are two other things that are happening at the end of this issue. One of them we will come back to later in context of X-Factor 35. The other leads directly into X-Factor 34, and that is Cameron Hodge getting armored up for a fight he is anticipating over at the Wright's headquarters. Now, he knows that Warren Worthington's gonna come after him. Warren Worthington's going around looking for Candy Southern. Cameron Hodge has captured Candy Southern, so... And killed her. He's sort of hooked her up to a bunch of machines and has been torturing her She's and experimenting on her. I she mean, is physically alive, but he has effectively killed her. So he's getting into his Super Cameron Hodge battle armor Mark II. Mark I was presumably the Ruby Quartz monstrosity that he wore a while back. That was quite a thing. Mark II is somewhat more streamlined, but still pretty silly looking, all the more so because he basically wears a raincoat over it. It's sort of like that big bulky smile face armor that his soldiers wear. And so the way we're going to see Cameron Hodge for like almost the rest of this arc is as this hooded figure with a big cartoon smiley face underneath the hood. He's very, very cartoony at this point. He is, yeah. But he's not wrong because Death, which is to say Warren Worthington, the man who will soon be called Archangel, is just shredding the crap out of his smile face soldiers outside. Like, he is murdering the hell out of them. There are severed limbs flying around, people being cut in half. It is gruesome. And he's only sort of doing this on purpose. Because the thing is, he's got these wings, he's got these bladed wings, and he only has partial conscious control over them. The wings go homicidal, whether or not he wants them to. Which raises a question that I think is worth addressing, which is sort of the ethics of him going into battle and his state of mind here, that he's warning people, he's saying, you know, I can't control the wings, I can't control the wings, but he's still continuing to come at them. Well, you know, he's a man on a mission. He's looking for Candy Southern. But yeah, this conflict, this, is it worth getting into a fight knowing that I'm not going to be able to pull these wing punches? Is it worth it? You know, and that's that's a conflict we're going to see certainly all through the 90s, which were full of angst and blades in equal measure. For Warren right now, it's always worth it because he's still kind of in death mode, along with the hyperdramatic declamation that goes with it. You smile-faced creatures who oppose me seem to be robots, yet you speak as if you were human. You scream as you die. Goth, 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 goth. None more goth. Yeah. It's a pretty awesome fight scene, though, as gruesome as it is, especially as he, like, turns into sort of a human blender and goes through them, you know, like, do a barrel roll. God! I'm just saying, he's making, like, right soldier smoothies. Miles! Well, anyway. So, yeah, as Warren's killing everybody, Hodge is talking to his new BFFs, the demons, who apparently all the hooded figures he's been hanging out with, yeah, they're totally demons. They're nastier's buds. Nastier's new role aside from empowering Hodge, at this point appears to be calling Hodge on his bullshit because Hodge is in hardcore rationalization mode. You gotta remember, this is a guy who started a campaign of genocide because he was pissed off that his former best friend was cooler than he was. And we find out here that maybe his motives are a little more complicated than that. But ultimately and always, it keeps coming back to Angel. Warren, you had family, wealth, education, beauty... You were already homo superior. 
What need had you of wings? And how I... Worshipped him? Loved him? Loathed him! And hated him, nastier. Even before he grew those accursed wings and called himself the Angel. Did you? I had hoped that I was dealing with a realist, Commander Hodge. But now I see that, regrettably, you are not. Yeah, Nastier has, like, no time for any kind of rationalizations or denials. Yeah, I feel so weird about this Hodge reveal. Like, it's such a trope. It's the dude who can't admit his feelings for his male best friend and so goes supervillain and tries to kill him. And it's also part of a long, very uncomfortable and very kind of uncool tradition of specifically textual queering of male supervillains. And that queerness being tied directly to their villainy. And Hodge is an interesting case relative to this because until it becomes almost textual in the dialogue with Nastier, he doesn't have a lot of the visual and behavioral coding that tends to go with that, that you tend to see, for instance, in a lot of Batman villains. Yeah, like the Joker, the Riddler. I'm going to tangent briefly here just because it's interesting and because it's very much my field in terms of, you know, where I used to live in academia. And with those villains and what you see a lot with cartoon villains as well, there's a specific paper on this that's sort of the seminal research on coding and performance in villains that focuses really heavily on children's cartoons. But with Batman villains and with a lot of villains, you see their coding as queer and feminine escalating and amped up relative to how evil they're supposed to seem and how sympathetic they're not supposed to be. So, for example, when Riddler's a good guy, he tends to be drawn and coded in much more masculine ways than when he's a full-on villain. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing, and it's much, much more exaggerated, I think, around Batman villains just because they're less likely to have superpowers, so performance is a much more significant part for them and for Batman of the hero-villain roles. But yeah, Hodge just seems to be jumping around in terms of the way he's portraying himself. Maybe he just doesn't want to talk about how things really are. But like at one point, he even gets all weird and religious when Nastier asks him, you know, whether he thinks he's better than the demons, that he's better than Nastier. Our Bible is the proof of human superiority, Nastier, and evolution is the devil's workshop. And then when Nastier brings up mutants... A violent change in nature's plan, counter to heavenly will. A betrayal of all that heaven promises. They must be destroyed. And we read this very differently, I think. You mentioned reading this as Hodge suddenly embracing animator-style fanaticism. I read this very much as Hodge trying to rationalize a more global reason for his vendetta. And he as good as admits that a little bit later, actually, which we'll get to in a moment. Meanwhile, Death is continuing to slice his way through not only the right soldiers, but the Legion of Demons that Nastier has sent to help them while declaiming about it. And Death is so fun here. Like, he's so goofy. They're demon wings. They have a cutting edge. They're living death. Their scream gives voice to the darkness in my soul. He actually says that? He totally does. They feed on fear and anger and hatred. And I am their prisoner, even as they serve me. I kind of feel like Warren should hang out with Scott. I mean, these last couple of issues, they've both been just so gloriously angsty. No, because Scott's just angsty. Warren is super, super, super dramatic about it. He's going full-on Miltonian. (laughs) I guess he kind of is, yeah. Now, Nastier pulls the demons out. They're getting cut up. They're getting killed. And Nastier says, we've got business to handle at an orphanage. We're going to head out. Hodge, I'll tell you what, you're going to survive this no matter what. But that's the only promise I'm really going to make here. And sure enough, Warren does make his way to Hodge's inner sanctum. And there's this really awesome three-panel sequence, just sort of zoomed out with Hodge waiting, the same panel of Hodge waiting, and then the same panel, but Warren bursting through the ground. And here we finally get Hodge confronting Warren and 
bringing home not only why he had it in for Warren, but why he specifically went after Candy. She was human and she loved you. And you loved her. You turned for me and loved her. So it's not philosophy then anymore, is it, Hodge? No, it's all personal. He's mad with rage. He unhooks Candy's life support like she is, again, functionally dead at this point anyway. Grapples with Warren, who's trying to warn him that he can't control his wings. And, in fact, Warren's wings behead Hodge. And now, for real this time. Cameron Hodge is dead forever and we'll never see him again. And his severed <laughs> head certainly won't become a supervillain in its own right. With his cracked glasses still on, which is my favorite feature of that. But that said, even knowing what's coming with the Extinction Agenda and with Cameron Hodge, you know, being immortal because of the demonic bargains he's made, this is some dark shit. I mean, this is Warren getting his revenge. This is Warren finding Candy Southern, but it's a Pyrrhic victory. Candy's dead, and all he's really done is confirm to himself just how lost he is, just how much of a murderer he now is. So that's pretty much it for Warren for a while. He's going to be gothy and emo, well, honestly, for more than a decade. But this conflict, at least, is resolved for the moment. Well, it's resolved with, you know, one final moment of doing the Crisis on Infinite Earths walk with Candy's corpse, and one final declaration. Welcome, gentlemen. I'd like to introduce myself. I am the Dark Angel, and my name is Death. I feel like that should go into, like, a driving guitar solo right after that. A lot of things he says feel like they should go into driving guitar solos. Awesome. Also, Archangel would be a great name for a metal band. It probably already is one. There are probably like four metal bands called Archangel already. <laughs> yes. At least one of them is probably really awkward Christian metal, too. Likely true. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, we catch up with a pair of characters who we saw first introduced, actually, well, a while ago, but more recently last issue. These are Nanny and Orphan Maker. Nanny and Orphan Maker are running around in a large ship, and their basic MOs, they're tracking mutant kids killing their parents and kidnapping the kids. They're being marginally more delicate about it than that. Orphan Maker has access to some kind of what he calls pixie dust, which is sort of a vaguely hypnotic power that lulls the kids into kind of a trance state so that they're not quite as horribly traumatized by this process as they might otherwise be. A couple things are very clear about this pair of characters from the start. The first is that Nanny thinks that she is acting in the children's best interest. She's describing what she's doing as protecting them, as rescuing them. And Orphan Maker is very loyal to her and also very clearly, if not necessarily literally a child, functioning at kind of a child level. He talks like a child. Nanny talks to him like he's a child. He's grown up size and he's wearing a full suit of armor. We can't see what he looks like. He's got this sort of big, powerful bionic armor. But he reasons and interacts with things, you know, at least the things that he's not shooting in the head, with very much a kid's logic and a kid's voice. And I really like villains like this because they're not just full-on villains like, say, the Reavers or Cameron Hodge. Villains who are convinced of the rectitude of their actions are always more interesting to me. Well, at least most of the time more interesting to me, especially when there's this element of tragedy of the orphan maker thinking he's doing the right thing for his mother figure, of Nanny thinking she's taking care of these children when she's, you know, destroying their entire families and lives. Nanny's also got some kind of connection to the right, or at least she's got access to their data because she's able to use it to discover that for demonic purposes, the right has tracked down a large concentration of mutant babies. And she decides that she and the orphan maker are going to get there first. So Nanny and the orphan maker are going to an orphanage full of mutant babies. The demons that work for Nastier are going to the same orphanage full of mutant babies. And Cyclops and Marvel Girl have finally figured out where Nathan Christopher Charles Summers probably is. Originally, Cyclops is going to go off and rescue him by himself. And it's just a really brief scene. In X-Factor 34, that's one of my, actually one of my favorite Scott and Jean scenes in this era of X-Factor. Oh, yeah? 
I don't know. I, I The two of them have a lot of I need to do this myself bullshit. We're in this together moments in either direction. And those always kind of hit me. And yeah, this is a good one. This plays well. We've made no secret of the fact that we love Scott and Jean's relationship. And this is a great era for it right here. They head off to the orphanage, which brings us to X Factor 35. X Factor 35 has a very, very low-key B-plot as New York continues to come alive and fight the people around it. But mostly it's about the catastrophic failure of the Nebraska Department of Social Services. Right. This freaking orphanage, people. It's not okay. Don't send your kids there. I mean, I guess you'd only send your kids there if you died and you wouldn't have much of a say in the matter. But if you do die, make sure that you have plans for your kids to not be sent there. So I mentioned very early on in X Factor when we were first covering the book, in this series, Cyclops's life kind of runs on nightmare logic. This is definitely, definitely one of those times. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say that this issue, he just sort of goes full on Silent Hill protagonist. Oh, geez, that's not good. So he like picks up a lead pipe or a board with some nails through it and starts beating the hell out of some nurses. Gina's basically functionally the radio. Oh, she starts crackling whenever there are monsters around. This is getting weird. <laughs> no, but they're finding their way through by vague psychic symbols. God, this is just a super, super creepy issue. And it's creepy on three parallel levels of things being just sort of slightly and unsettlingly discordant. This is all about unreliability and it's all about layers. So the first and obvious one of these is Scott's memories, which are clearly not quite right. And not only are they not quite right, but he usually doesn't notice that they're not quite right until Jean points it out. Like, he'll be telling her about something that happened at the orphanage, and she'll say, you know, no, you just described the same thing in two different time periods, or that couldn't have been that, or he'll start, but then he'll sort of find some complicated way to rationalize it away. We know that Scott's had a tragic backstory. We know he was in an orphanage. We know that nobody wanted him, and he worked for a thief before meeting up with Xavier. Well, he, he worked briefly and under duress for not just a thief, for a basically supervillain terrorist. Or, yeah. yeah. Jack of Diamonds. But to the best of my knowledge, there hadn't really been much to imply that the orphanage was anything other than an orphanage. Here, we discover otherwise, and the reasons for this are complicated. Some of them are going to come out in Inferno. Some of them are going to be revealed much, much later. Men. Narrative parallelism is one of my favorite tricks. But the other thing we've got is the people at the orphanage when they get to it. This is effectively a closed system, and it's one that looks superficially very normal and is very much performing a facade of normalcy, but is also clearly very wrong as soon as you scratch it all below the surface. Third, the orphanage itself. There's this superficially normal structure to it, and it's this normal building over this completely fucked up, weird sub-basement that everyone's forgotten exists. And the way the structure, the physical structure of the orphanage, parallels both the character stuff that's being peeled away and the structure of the story in this issue is really cool. I really, really like that. And again, I, I think that's part of why I'm pulling a Silent Hill comparison, because it's very much place as a central component of narrative and a central parallel to and metaphor for it. In a way, this almost seems like the opposite of X Factor number 32, the first issue we covered this time, that was filler. I mean, yes, it had connections to the ongoing plots, but this is just so deliberately laid out. It's just so intricate. Yeah, it's very, very, very much constructed. Really, there are a lot of points of dialogue that are basically the two of them trying to navigate the place as Cyclops is trying to parse apart his extremely conflicting and unreliable memories about it. And they keep on coming back to a couple specific things. One of them is the infirmary where maybe his powers manifested and maybe they didn't, but that all the kids are scared of. Another is this kid he remembers from it named Nathan, whose nickname was Lefty, which is a clue as to this kid's actual identity. And it's an obtuse clue, but I actually didn't pick up on this until I was reading back through it. Yeah, for me, uh, left and right are always Sinister and Dexter. I don't know why my brain always goes there, but it does. Now, 
what we'll find out much, much later, actually, in um, both classic X-Men backup stories and later in X-Men Legacy is, first of all, that the stuff that went down at the orphanage is even more fucked up than we see here. But second, that Sinister was, in fact, about half the people who we saw here. And those he wasn't were largely ones that he was controlling. The really, really, really short version of it is that he spent the years when Scott was at the orphanage systematically either brainwashing or killing anyone who Scott actually connected with. That's super messed up. Now, what I also love is Claremont's original plan for Sinister as a kid in the orphanage, which is that he really was a kid, and Mr. Sinister was just this sort of supervillain construct that he created of what he thought awesome would look like, what he thought effective and ruthless would look like. I don't think it was that he was actually a kid. I mean, I think he just had a a kid body. There have been a number of different descriptions of it, but you may be right there. And this is interesting because this is something that last issue, the stuff that Karen Gillan talked about with regards to research and directions you take characters when you're coming into them fairly fresh, extrapolating all of that into the form that Sinister ends up taking in Gillen's run of X-Men makes so much retroactive sense. Oh, I love in crunchy, so complex many interesting continuity. Ways. Yeah, Sinister is a system. And so, yeah, they continue through this place and they eventually do make their way down to the basement, down to where it's cold and dark and there are coffins, just like in Destiny's vision. There are sort of coffins. What there are are floating cryopods with babies in them. And Jean can telepathically feel Nathan Christopher. She's picked up psychic signals off a couple kids at the orphanage. She thinks that a number of the kids at the orphanage are probably mutants, which is correct. They are. But she can specifically feel and track Nathan Christopher. It's unclear here whether that's because his powers are starting to manifest or because she's got some kind of inherent connection to him. It's really complicated. It'll basically turn out both. This scene is so creepy because under this normal orphanage, there's this room that's vast and full of this cold mist. And there are these people in like those bunny suit safety suit things that don't even notice Scott and Jean. Well, and again, you get Scott trying to rationalize his own sort of memories of this saying, well, you know, Maybe I didn't quite remember. Maybe this is a new addition. Maybe this wasn't here when I was here. And that's why I have, you know, these gaps around it or don't really reliably remember. And Jean pointing out, no, this elevator is clearly decades old. This basement, this setup has clearly been around since at least when you were a kid. Yeah, it's really, really, really creepy. And it's really disconcerting. I mean, the the whole setup is, but the unreliability, the extent to which Nothing quite makes sense, and when you peel back the layers, it just gets more and more and more horrific, but still doesn't really make sense. It's, I think, responsible for a lot of the impact of this issue. So they're going to unfreeze Nathan and get out of there with him, and they decide, okay, well, we should just rescue all these kids, because obviously we cannot responsibly leave them in this place. We know that when you leave a kid to grow up here, they turn into a horribly dysfunctional adult who (laughs) wanders off in a fugue state trying to find old coffee shops and um, makes just terrible life choices. So we, we need to get these children out of here before they turn into, you know, more cyclopses. Unfortunately, they are not the only ones with this idea, and that's really not quite the same as everyone else's motives. Yeah, because as this is going on, Nanny and the Orphan Maker and their Lost Boys and Girls, it's always said Lost Boys, open parenthesis, and Girls, close parenthesis, which I like. Nanny's inclusive. She's horrible, but she's inclusive. They show up trying to rescue these mutant children, and Nastier's demons show up trying to take them back to Nastier. Let's go back to the lost kids for a second, because three of them are the kids we saw Nanny and Orphan Maker pick up in Kansas and then in Hong Kong. Two of them are not. Two of them are children who we haven't seen in a very long time. These are Joey and Galen, Jean Grey's sister Sarah's kids. They're Jean's niece and nephew. This is also the other tangential connection, I think, that we see between Nanny and the right. 
because it looks like the Marauders took Sarah. We're going to find out later that the right actually got her and presumably her kids along with her. And that's why Nanny's got them now. Now, these kids are completely oblivious. They've all been brainwashed in the way that Nanny brainwashes people. But what this turns into is this big three-way melee as Cyclops and Marvel Girl fight Nanny and her people as the demons are stealing babies in the background and then get involved in the fight as well. It is chaos and carnage, and there's a big fight happening around a lot of helpless babies, which is probably not so good. And everything ricochets because everyone is impervious to everything. (laughs) Right. Everybody set up their resistances really well before this fight. It's really awkward. What ends up happening? uh, The demons are able to get away with the babies, and they can't stop Nanny and Orphan Maker. Like, Gene and Scott just can't take them down. They do not have the capacity to do it. And Jean makes the call that they should go after the demons, basically because on one hand, Nanny and Orphan Maker are clearly supervillains. On the other hand, they're clearly actively concerned for the well-being of the children they have. The kids who are with Nanny and Orphan Maker now are probably going to be safe for the immediate future. On the other hand, her new telepathic link to Nathan Christopher tells her that the babies are about to become demon food. So, one of the other things the demons say is that they're bringing the babies, the special one, Nathan Christopher in particular, to someone named the Goblin Queen. Because he's the best baby. He's going to grow up to have more pouches than all the other babies put together. (laughs) But yeah, they're going to bring him to someone named the Goblin Queen, which brings us quite nicely to... Inferno Watch. This is the last of the Inferno Ledens that we are going to be looking at, and so here the final pieces are falling into place. We're seeing the continuation of one specific motif, namely the malicious inanimate objects of New York continuing to animate and attack its innocent citizens. Like sweaters. Sweaters do that. Yes, sweaters do indeed do that. We are also seeing the first bits of the gradual return of Jean's telepathy, which she is finally going to get back in full force over the course of Inferno. We've got what we think to be the first mention of the Goblin Queen by name and the first hint of her connection to specifically Nathan Christopher. And we've got the first hints of Cyclops' connection to Mr. Sinister, which again will be revealed in, if not full, then more substance over the course of Inferno. So there you have it. This arc goes in a whole lot of directions, but there's a lot of really cool buildup. There's a lot of really high drama and a surprisingly adept juggling of that many plot threads all going on at once. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Snack Panther asks on Tumblr, Hey there, longtime listener, first time question asker on the internet. Why does Mr. Sinister keep running with Apocalypse? Team Blue Bros seems to show up together often in the comics and the cartoon. Other than the reductive genetic remake the human race angle, I don't understand the tag team. I thought Sinister would be smart enough to know better. Maybe I'm overestimating him. Okay, so to start with, Apocalypse was actually the one that created Mr. Sinister, or at least he changed him from being a normal, if dickish human, named Nathaniel Essex, into the pale glam dude that we all know and love. And that was an exchange for Mr. Sinister's servitude. Essentially, Sinister was bound to Apocalypse from then on. And so since that time, Sinister has spent his time trying to find a way to kill Apocalypse and thus free himself so he can mess with genetics on his own terms, in his own way. And that mostly involves manipulating the Summer's Grey bloodline to create Cable, Nathan Christopher, like we've been talking about, who he's essentially designed to be an Apocalypse killer. Eventually, he does succeed, mostly. I mean, Apocalypse does come back now and again. It's not the X-Men without him showing up every few years. But ever since the storyline The Twelve, Sinister's pretty much been a free agent. So that's worked out well. Couple other things about them. They don't trust each other at all. In the Age of Apocalypse files, one of the things you see is that Sinister is not one of the chosen. Apocalypse is planning to kill Sinister once Sinister has fulfilled his purpose. Neither of them trusts or likes the other. 
both of them, I mean, their relationship is and always has been very fundamentally utilitarian. Like, I sort of see Sinister as sticking with Apocalypse largely for the grant funding. <laughs> there is that. Also, I think he'll maybe explode if he doesn't, or there's probably something involved in his transformation. Well, and Apocalypse has the grand vision, and Sinister is a character who acts purely and exclusively and entirely in self-interest. His beef with Apocalypse is the epitome of the dude who wants to save the world because it's where he keeps his stuff. All right. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I think Boom Boom was at her best in Next Wave. Thoughts? My thoughts are that you are wrong, anonymous listener. Now, Boom Boom is a lot of fun in Next Wave. Everyone is a lot of fun in Next Wave. Next Wave is great. But the version of Boom Boom in Next Wave is radically at odds and inconsistent with any other version of Boom Boom. She is, for all intents and purposes, I think, a different character. I mean, I I like Boom Boom Next Wave, but I don't really think of her as Boom Boom, and so I don't really think of her as being a better or worse version of Boom Boom than any other, because she's just kind of a different character. Okay, so where's Boom Boom at her best? Everywhere. Actually, I love her during this era of X Factor, and I think the most recent place where I've really, really liked her was Cable and X-Force, which actually does a pretty good job of synthesizing some of the Next Wave stuff into a more text-true version of the character. Yeah, totally agree. That series is so great. I think Ellis talked about in Next Wave kind of trying to make her a Paris Hilton figure, which is really bizarre to me because the fundamental brand and premise of Paris Hilton is someone who has grown up absolutely saturated in privilege, and Boom Boom is and should be the opposite of that. I mean, that is not her origin story, and it's not what informs her as a character. And so you can have her kind of play clueless, yeah, but she. But what makes her take is really, really fundamentally different from that. And again, Next Wave is awesome. It's a lot of fun. I like the character called Boom Boom in Next Wave. I just don't really think of her as the same character as the Boom Boom we're talking about here. So we are a listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of Patreon support will get you acknowledgement on the podcast from fictional characters. Today, alarmingly, I believe that I am turning over the microphone to Nanny. You've done so well, my orphan maker. We've saved two more poor mutant children, and soon we'll save them all. Now what shall we call you, my newest members of the Lost Boys and Girls? You will be Trace Carter, and you, Knit Me a Pony. Now let's bring you aboard and dress you up, and we'll find more wonderful children to save from their wicked parents. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be jaunting across the Atlantic to meet up with Brian, Megan, Kitty, Rachel, and Kurt. As Shadowcat has the worst plan ever, the Juggernaut is surprisingly entertaining. And there's once again a lot going on in a basement. (laughs) 